0: Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast.
1: Hello, listener. Thank you once again for tuning in. This is episode 18 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast, your monthly feast of technology chats and interviews. On board the pod today, we have listener favourite Digital Bulletin CEO Romilly Broad. 18. Really? 18. Quite a lot now, isn't it?
0: Yes. We should do something for the 20th. That's for sure.
1: Absolutely. And for the first time, content director for our Tech for Good magazine, it's Daniel Brigham.
2: Hello, Ben. And hello, Romilly. Hi, Dan. I have to say, it's an absolute privilege to be among such great podcasters. Well, listening from afar, and now I get to see how it works in action. All the secrets will be revealed.
1: How's everybody doing? Rom, obviously we had B on last month. Now Dan is making yep. his debut, but you are immovable.
0: I'm not sure that I'm not sure that's by choice. I don't seem to have a choice in this, right? I just get invited every time. I'm not sure if I'm really adding anything. Am I? Yeah, adding? adding everything. A lot. I'm like the default option, you know, when you're setting your user settings up. I'm <laughs> the one that um, I'm just there, right? Yeah. Dan,
1: you've already said it, but you're an esteemed company with 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 Rom on the also, pod.
2: I appreciate the fact Rom's put a suit jacket on as well. I, well, I've just had a meeting Getting down to proper you know, work. You,
0: here. You, you've got to look the part for these video meetings, haven't you? These days, so I've got a jacket that I have on standby, <laughs> just whipping on <laughs> if I don't want to look, you know, like I've too relaxed at home. There I do spend most
2: of my time on calls in uh, on calls in interviews with t shirts, but jogging bottoms or a shirt and shorts underneath. But... Hopefully, no one gets to see.
3: Well,
0: you just announced it now, so everyone knows. <laughs> Is that what's happening right now? I can I can only I've see got, your top.
2: I have got shorts on here. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's I shorts. That's
1: something. I've not worn shorts for months, <laughs> but yeah. they are very comfortable. So maybe I maybe must doing it. Excellent, right, listener. Coming up on this month's episode, we are going to tackle head-on the uncomfortable topic of global cyber attacks and the very real threats to the world's economy. Fun, fun, fun. We'll also take a look back at our Bain & Company case study, and I speak to Facility Live's CEO, Gian Piero Lotito. But first, here's some news. Right, let's start with Stripe, a $600 million funding round which values the payments provider a monster $95 billion. It is now the most valuable private fintech company in Silicon Valley and the most valuable U.S. startup, full stop. Now, elsewhere in the news recently, we saw the European Union make a commitment to fight the semiconductor shortage, which is causing blockages in the manufacturing world. It says it will double production of chips by 2030, meaning 20% of all chips globally will be produced on this continent. Now, it's been a trying few weeks for the McAfee name. Its founder, John McAfee, was charged with conspiracy to commit fraud and money laundering. I don't think he's actually associated with the company anymore, but the security firm itself has also announced plans to offload its enterprise business to Symphony Technology Group for $4 billion. Other stories of note, lots of money flying around this month. We've had a few big acquisitions, including Okta paying north of $6 billion for rival Auth0. We've had the news that JP Morgan is shutting down its digital wallet service and Malaysia Airlines disclosed a data breach which lasted for nine years. Hmm. Now you can get access to the best reporting on those stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But next we are going to discuss a story that is rumbling on and on. That is the Microsoft Exchange hack and its ramifications on the enterprise and security worlds. Now, not that long ago, we ran an in-depth feature warning that another SolarWinds style attack might just be around the corner. What we didn't know was just how quickly it would happen. Hackers originally from a state sponsored group in China recently found and began exploiting weaknesses in Microsoft's mail server exchange. News that came to light earlier this month. Since then hundreds of thousands of organizations worldwide have had their exchange servers compromised with different hackers jumping in and leaving responders racing to secure their data and systems. Rom. Given the scale of the SolarWinds attack last year and now this, is it fair to say Mm. kind of we're dealing with a a new, different and very scary kind of cybersecurity problem? Um,
0: It's it's definitely new and it's definitely scary. I'm not sure how different it is, though, because, I mean, it it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about WannaCry and all of that stuff. And actually, you know, we interview a lot of people and um, it's not that long ago, months, not years, that we were still talking to people about the impact and consequences of wannacry and now we're talking about this one as well and so obviously um, solarwinds was um or oh, and remains deeply serious because obviously they, um in the end i think it was it was a kind of crazy number of of organisations that were compromised but ultimately they kind of cherry picked <laughs> just some some really important ones like you know the government in multiple forms and not just in the U S either, but you know, all over the place that's, that's fairly major and ongoing. And now you've got this on top, which is mad. The the real, the real worry, I suppose, about the exchange thing is that it's a bit like WannaCry. It exposes the legacy underbelly of huge numbers of organizations. Most of whom are just trying to do good things in the world. And it's, it's the kind of, um, um, what's the right word it's it's the fact that this isn't really targeted it's just it's almost like damage is the goal for damage's sake especially because it I think something about the exchange um, attack means that it just opens the door to more cry type ransomware stuff mm-hmm. where the main victims end up being organizations that don't necessarily prioritize their technical infrastructure because they've got much more important things to worry about like hospitals <laughs> um, and that's that's the that's what makes it so scary. I think is that yeah. it's just um, you know it's 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 that I think when you attach the the scale of the damage to the source of the damage, which seems to be um, state backed, um, you know states that are opposed to uh, the West, shall we say? <laughs> I'm trying to come up with the right words. Um, then it, it adds this extra dimension to it and it suddenly becomes part of a bigger cultural picture that isn't just about technology it's about all sorts of things that we're talking about all the time where where sowing discord and problems is almost the aim in of itself it's like you know inserting anarchy um yeah because disruption itself is a goal that's worth pursuing and that you know that's that's not really cyber that's just being horrible isn't it it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> not being horrible
1: yeah that can everyone just be nice um yeah (laughs) politically we're gonna we're gonna get onto the political kind of side of it in a minute but you're right it's kind of the floodgates have kind of opened with this exchange one, haven't they and we're i'm sure we don't even know one percent of the actual impact of what what this is going to be it seems though that the real concern of this one is the the number of kind of different hacking groups different hackers who are kind of jumping into it and have really got no kind of specific targets in mind they're just kind of
0: getting into whoever they can get into. It's it's kind of like one of these awful doomsday counters. It's just going up, right? Everyone knows it's just <laughs> it's just going to keep going up. Um, patches are out there, right? Um, Microsoft has got on top of it. Their patches are available. But that's the problem. There were patches available for the WannaCry stuff too pretty quickly. That's not really the, the vulnerability Vulnerability really on a macro scale is, is um, the sheer scale, the sheer number of, of people that need to actually go and take some action. Um, if they can, not everybody can easily uh, patch systems uh, in that way. So it's 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 an ongoing and pernicious and awful thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Dan, um, with the Solar one, obviously everyone knows the name Solar now, but maybe before it wasn't a, a company that was on the the tip of everyone's tongue. Microsoft, on the other hand, this is something they could really do without, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's almost it almost feels like Solar was kind of the up and coming. Indie band that uh, no one had really heard of, playing small <laughs> venues. Whereas this is taking it properly, sort of stadium rock bands. Now this is what this is what takes it mainstream. Cyber attack. Whereas I think Joe Public saw cyber attacks as something rumbling along, rumbling along in the in the background that didn't really affect them. But now with so many organisations and small sort of startups and small businesses affected, it's going to affect a huge amount of staff, especially with people working remotely, leaving. Um, leaving attacks more likely, it's going to start affecting people. And I think when uh, when the White House starts talking about it again, um, maybe perhaps with a slightly lighter touch than uh, the previous administration, but when the White House is touching it, it you know it's kind of a, a PR problem for Microsoft. But there's also an acceptance, this is our future, this is what's going to happen. Organizations are going to be hit, uh, whatever uh, updates or patches they can uh, put in place, there's still going to be, you know, people are going to find a way to get through those defenses so it's how quickly organizations can react is how they're going to be judged i think and as rom said they've they've sent out updates and patched stuff up pretty quickly but again that's probably that's really only for the organizations that can a afford it and uh, and can do it on scale as well there's still going to be thousands of businesses that have been affected that haven't been able to update yet so
0: yeah i, I mean i'm not sure how quick obviously none, none of us are cybersecurity experts but it seemed quick to us, but I think the first reports of the vulnerabilities were in right at the beginning of the year, in at the beginning of January, right? And it wasn't until March that these mm. fixes were released. Um, you'll need to talk to someone who knows a lot more about it than me to know whether how, you know how, how rapid that actually is. But the fact is that right now those patches are available, and the real problem is um, getting everything patched. It's, it's a bit like chasing a virus, right? It's, it's like how quickly can we remediate this problem? But I, I think there's a big difference as well, isn't it? And I don't want to b- belittle SolarWinds because right? you can't belittle something that's that serious. But there's something a bit more cinematic about SolarWinds. And, and there's something about SolarWinds as well that is, um, I don't know, there's it, a more interesting narrative where in the end it comes down to people. I think that wasn't it the, the boss of the company essentially blamed an intern, right? for yeah, using a really t- dumb t- password on is it. Solo
1: wins 123 or something? Right. <laughs>
0: like, oh I'm not an expert, but I don't do that. And um, you've got this interesting narrative where actually it all ends up coming back to a, a bad culture, uh, you know, uh, a a, a cybersecurity culture that isn't reinforced and embedded and and people like that. You know, you, what your one weak point is not technology in the end, as ever. It's a person. Um There's something, I guess, more sinister about the exchange stuff, which is that there's a concerted effort um, to uncover um, zero day vulnerabilities, you know, so things that people just weren't aware of and then to really smash them and maximize the the damage you can do. And that's, I don't know, it just feels as storytellers, it feels like it's, I don't know, it's a bit more Mordor. Yeah, it does.
1: (laughs) It feels impossible uh, to control as well. Maybe, maybe right. is there? Can you get a vaccine for a for a um, <laughs> for, for a hack? Because oh, there's, right. if you, you made the virus comparison wrong. But it feels like you know this is this is kind of like that in a way. It's just going right. to spread and spread and spread. Dan, you were going to jump in.
2: Well, I well, am going to try Romilly Broad one two three after this for his password to <laughs> see if I can hack in. But, <laughs> but it's hey, also hey, let me just make hack-
0: a quick call. I'm just going to mute myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Microsoft have
2: quite aggressively blamed. China for this, which, which is fine for most com- American like, companies that have no presence in China whatsoever, but of course, Microsoft do. So it, it feels like they're already spinning. They know there's a PR, uh, there's a PR problem that can come from this. So they're already spinning against China because that obviously has played well in, in the States and other parts of the Western world. And over the last couple of years as well, I mean, they've, they've gone as far to call them a, a state sponsored threat actor coming in for this, which. When, you know, when LinkedIn and, and Bing are still working in China and used pretty widely in China, that suggests they're already armoring themselves against uh, China as a way of uh, protecting their own sort of, uh, their own PR.
1: Yeah. And there were similar links with Russia with the solar winds one as well. Rom, I'm going to bring it back to the topic that you volunteered earlier, the political side of it. You're definitely the best place to comment on this. Is this cyber um, warfare? Are we seeing cyber warfare?
0: Yes but as as i sort of mentioned earlier as well there's nothing new about that either i think you know the the term that's used um for these sorts of operations are uh what are they advanced persistent um threats um or i think that's right apt right and um th- essentially this is um organized extremely sophisticated um groups that are either directly or loosely affiliated with with uh, nations themselves, uh, as, as the, and um, you know, acronym suggests ac- they're being advanced and they're being persistent. And it's basically just a day job. It's like, right, we need to just continually apply, apply pressure in a cyber sense and make no mistake. The U S is doing exactly the same thing. So is the country we're standing in. Everybody's at it. Um, it's just obviously the, the PR and the narrative is spun, uh, uh, in a certain way that we we mainly perceive it from our side of the fence. If you see what I mean, um, I have no idea what's going on on the other side of the fence. I'm guessing other stuff too. Um, it's just maybe on the other side of the fence, it's not as democratized. It's not as free market based. It's not as private company based. Um, there's there's a certain willingness and a difference uh, in terms of where you know those attacks and the, the motivation for those attacks come from. Uh, whether it's you know Russia or China or North Korea or anywhere else is that um, in a, when you when you throw attacks over the fence from uh, east to west, what you're doing is is you're attacking uh, private enterprise as often as you're attacking anything else. and in fact as as is the case with both of these, but especially solar you're attacking private enterprise in order to get to the you know to the to the the, the government infrastructure that sits on top of it. Because it's a different way of organising things, and so I think it—you it, know—this is this has been going on for years. I think it's just getting more elegant, it's getting more um, sophisticated, and and I guess the, probably the most interesting conversation now is to have. Well, look, this is how you know. How do you stop this? How do you um, create uh, effective barriers and defenses against this sort of thing happening? Um, and one suspects that is a systemic change that's required there. If you, especially with the exchange stuff, you know, that's a massive problem because so many companies have worked with on the back of Microsoft exchange on, on, you know, on premise, as it were, um, for so long decades that it's an incredibly difficult thing to pick unpick. And it time itself is what creates the vulnerability in, in many cases. And so we needed like a whole new paradigm, really. That's but it. We should get um, someone on the podcast who knows about this to, to ask what the future is all about here. I think that would be interesting. Definitely. Um,
1: yeah, I think I think in terms of some some of the exchange software that hadn't been patched up for over a decade. So it's you're, you're right in, in when you make the point about time. Um, Dan, let's let's ask you to put your tech for good hat on. There is definitely a concern here, isn't there, around the security and safety of kind of the, the systems that underpin public services?
2: Yeah, and obviously my tech for good hat is made from wholly sustainable materials as well. But uh, as Ron mentioned, the WannaCry um, attack uh, three or four years ago, and that really exposed sort of how the public sector ran on outdated systems. Um, And it's probably too early early to say now um, how how this one is going to affect it. But it will be interesting to see how the public sector is updated since the WannaCry. Um, attack and how this and this this is kind of its test case scenario, isn't it? If it suddenly costs the NHS ninety million pounds again like it did, like the WannaCry attack did, then it's learnt nothing. So this is it's hard to really kind of predict how how it's gonna go. Um we do know that NHS has spent a lot of money on updating uh, their systems and their, their whole digital infrastructure and so as. The UK government, where I'm more interested in seeing uh, the impact is in local government, which again has run on pretty outdated systems that are rarely co- connected and there's little collaboration between them as well. So that's only really going to emerge in the next sort of few weeks and few months, I think. And but, although as Rom sort of asked, how, how do you tackle this? Well, Microsoft and other big sort of IT and software organisations have education programmes now, don't they? So Microsoft very much go to public sector go to government go to health uh, organizations and work with them to ensure the, these kind of things have minimal risk um, and they spend a vast amount of money ensuring this as well because they know it's a problem that's not going to go away it's you can't you can't get rid of it again it's a bit like coronavirus you won't get rid of it it's just learning to live with it
1: yeah definitely the education point is a really interesting one actually because I've had numerous times like a huge percentage of cyber attacks are down just to kind of human error and human ignorance. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of time and investment being spent on that. Right chaps. Um, thank you very much. We're going to wrap things up there. Next up, we're going to delve into automation and the future of work, but first this. Find us as digital bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. For this month's case study portion of the show, we are going to review our feature on Bain & Company, one of the prestigious big three management consultancies. Bain has built out a team dedicated to supporting clients with advice and strategy around automation. Reports from Bain themselves found that US companies alone could invest $8 trillion in automation technologies over the course of this decade. Uh, We had the privilege of speaking to Ted Shelton expert partner in automation and digital innovation for Bain. So before we open this up to the panel, here is Ted talking about business pressures and why automation should be a strategic imperative.
3: Every company needs to be constantly thinking about how do they improve their operations? Uh, They are under pressure to reduce cost, to increase the speed with which they deliver, to increase the quality of the product or the service they're delivering. And so every company needs to be constantly looking at their marketplace and looking at what the strategic drivers are for actually changing those cost, quality and speed curves. What we believe is that technology is one of those strategic imperatives for companies. Um, Digital has been disrupting the way we do business now for decades. Um, What we see in automation in particular is that there is now a parallel Complementary way for companies to approach the question of how do they improve their operations? How do they reduce cost? How do they improve speed? How do they improve quality? Um, Traditional IT uh, allows us to put the systems, the software, the infrastructure, the devices in place to be able to serve the work being done by people. What automation does is complement the people in doing that work. And that's the major strategic difference in the way in which we're going to think about work Going forward,
1: Dan, this is your first digital bulletin case study, so congratulations on that, first of all. Um, <laughs> maybe start by telling us how, or giving us a sense of how much time and investment Bain is kind of putting into this area.
2: Uh, well, it's certainly a a growing area for for Bain. Um, it's not it's not new for them, um, and it's led by Ted, who you just uh, listened to. Those really sort of interesting and evangelical about it. He's a he was a really cool guy definitely sort of coding in the morning and then surfing in the uh, evening kind of guy. So it was a real pleasure to talk to you, but he's kept his team relatively small. Um, so they've got a specialist sort of automation center of excellence team, but their approach is more collaborative. So they partner with a sort of network of uh, specialist tech companies or tech and software companies, such as uh, UiPath and Fortress IQ, who have mentioned in it as well. And that, they would say that makes them more flexible. So it's not one size fits all for all the, organizations they work with they find out what the organization's needs are and how automation can best serve that and then how they can partner they can introduce a specific partner to best serve that need as well so they do things slightly differently and a little bit more sort of flexibly and
1: it's it's also the with their service it's i guess it's about and the article goes into this quite largely but it's about supporting those businesses with like process change as much as kind of just
2: picking some technology off a shelf and and implementing it. Right? Yeah. Ted was, Ted was big on talking about technology as one of, I think, as he says in that quote, actually one of those, one of the strategic imperatives, but it's very much just one of them. It's there to support the big decisions rather than take the lead on the big decisions. So their sort of success in automation relies on more than using great technology. It relies on the executives and the C-suite. working out how best to use that technology rather than just getting the great technology and hoping it uh, improves uh, processes both for customers and for employees that's the wrong way around Bain have a sort of I call it uh, future back where they get the goal in mind work back for backwards from there and work out how to automate from from there um, you know you can have uh, all the great tech tech you can but it's uh, it's how you use it it's um, it's a bit like I don't know like a minor um, working underground with a flash headlight that keeps flashing on and off. You'll get the work done, but you won't get it done as quickly. And automating is a kind of a flashlight that's on all of the time. It just allows a, a streamlining of process. And that that's how Bain work, really. Yeah. I'm just thinking back, Rom, to
1: another automation story we told with um, Telefonica in Spain. And actually, it's quite similar in the sense that it was robotic process automation, which is what UiPath do. And in that case, it was Blue Prism, who was, you know, one of UIPath's big um, kind of rivals in that space, but on that story as well, we had a we had a consulting company, EY, and obviously Bain. That's what they do. Does it kind of show that when when it comes to like automation and integrating automation, which is one of the right now one of the one of those big technologies that is that people are the businesses are actually able to implement and drive change with that a, a company coming in from the side and actually helping with this massive kind of organisational change is essential, isn't it? And that's where Bain has seen this kind of opportunity, I guess.
0: Yeah. And that's that's where it starts becoming less about a piece of technology and more about the future of work. You know, what is the future of work? Because automation, uh, on one hand, for people that you're deploying it on, can be quite scary. But actually, its purpose very rarely is. We we, we told a very similar story with uh, BT a while ago, Um Obviously, BT, massive telco in the UK. Just in case anyone isn't aware of that, it's the same thing. They're saying, "Look, we've got a load of people who are doing pretty um, mundane, routine things. Serious percentages of these people's time is being spent just shuffling systems and or bits of information from one thing to another place to another place." We've all been on the phone to someone as they've said, "Okay, so just bear with me. I'm just waiting for that screen to load." And you go, "Obviously, you're on the end of the phone." You go you're loading a screen like what why is it not just on your screen already like what's going on it's because they've got multiple different processes and the automation layer comes on top and it says do you know what we can save serious percentages of time for the people that are already working with us it's not threatening their jobs the theory is humans are way better at doing things that aren't that they're better at thinking creatively problem-solving um, forming relationships with their customers and generally treating people well and all those other things and that's where automation helps And the future of work is about actually ending up in a kind of partnership with, it's a bit kind of weird to say, a partnership with AI. You're not weird. (laughs) You don't don't have a partner with an, you don't don't partner up with an algorithm. What you do is you are supported by a set of software tools that make your job way easier to do in terms of the mundane stuff so that you can spend far more time doing the kind of complicated, difficult thinking type stuff that humans are actually good at, if you see what I mean. And and Bain seemed to be of that mind, one hundred percent. And it's it's interesting how uh, re, uh, there was a lot of t- talk about ethics and things like that that are part of the Bain story. It's, you know, there's a bigger picture. It's like, well, hang on, yeah, this is this might be great for you as a company. It might there might be efficiencies, and costs uh, efficiencies to be found here. But how does this affect your community? Um, you know, the, the community of people around you. Ultimately, they are your stakeholders. Uh, and I, I was quite taken with how he how uh, we talked about that yeah it's it's a good point because often with with automation and
1: f- like topics around future of work it is quite hard to rationalize that in, in in your head sometimes and certainly what you know the hybrid workforce is a topic we're going to talk about in a minute but dan's case study leads on this idea of, of bain helping organizations plan for 2030 so looking ahead 10 years and at the future of work and you mentioned it there on but of course another key technology between now and then will be artificial intelligence In this next clip, Ted touches on the interaction between automation, so RPA and AI, and how this is a crucial element in businesses achieving what he calls the holy grail, greater efficiency and increased revenues.
3: Automation becomes one of these key bridges for us to be able to get to that future state. Um, That future state being one in which we should expect that artificial intelligence is actually a key part of how we are creating success in our businesses. Um, Many, many different areas of the business are going to be impacted by these algorithms, these um, analytical approaches to the data that we're collecting about our business. Um, A company that does not start looking at AI today is one that in three years will be behind and in five years will be at risk. Um, Every industry, every business, every part of every business is going to be impacted by these tools. And automation becomes a way to be able to insert the insights that we get from these artificial intelligence tools into business processes.
1: Dan, Ted is saying there essentially, isn't he, that automation is kind of the key to unlocking the power of artificial intelligence. Many organizations might see AI as something that is unachievable for them, but really it's kind of a step-by-step process. And one of the first steps is automation.
2: Yeah, as he mentions, I mean, mentions there, Ted is big on looking at the future of work. So he's not thinking a years from now he's thinking 2025. And he's specifically in this example of the case study worked on looking ahead to 2030. And he believes that the future is very AI heavy. So rather than just task orientated automation AI is going to start to dominate and his uh, his belief is that the C-suite and the executives aren't well versed in artificial artificial intelligence, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to think. Um, and so, but his and Bain's task is versing um, the C-suite in automation and AI and showing them how that creates success as well. And again, this is where the likes of UiPath path come in because um, rather than using, uh, introducing task orientated automation, their robotics allows much more of a greater insight uh, through artificial intelligence. So their platforms enable some sort of faster, more accurate outcomes for sort of their business processes. Um, and this is still a little while off yet, and most organizations won't be implementing the use of AI for a good while yet, but Bain are all about thinking about five years from now and 10 years from now to get organizations really business ready and thinking about it before their competitors start thinking about it.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a kind of sense of urgency in, in Ted's words, though. I mean, the, the quote that stood out to me, Rom, was, I'm going to read it out verbatim, a company that does not start looking at AI today is one that in three years will be behind and in five years will be at risk. Um, two things, Rom. Firstly, are we looking at AI? Because I still want to have a business in five years. And secondly, <laughs> is do you believe him?
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. Actually, the answer to both your questions is yes. <laughs> but, um, but then you know that. Um, the... Um, yes so fundamentally one thing i think that is generally speaking true and this is an old, a grotesque oversimplification obviously is that um competition between companies is uh, accelerating it's becoming um uh, because, because you know digitization is just a, a massive part of what just about everyone does no matter what they make or whatever whatever they do everything is servitized and digital um the pace of uh, of change is far quicker than it ever used to be. Um, therefore, efficiencies and uh, insights and business intelligence and so on becomes ever more important so that you can make better decisions more quickly, that every individual person in an organization is able to act quicker and smarter and so on and so on. In other words, if you're not using the right tools to enable you to compete on that basis, then in three years, you're going to Everything you do is going to cost a lot more than everything that your competitors do. And then in five years, that, that will punish you um, a lot. And yes, you'll be at risk. I, you know, that seems um, completely correct and believable. And obviously, the more important, the, the bigger you are as an organization, um, the more important that is because you're operating at such great a scale. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And that's why we talk to so many people about automation, not just automation, intelligent automation as well, which is, you know, the application of that that artificial intelligence layer on top of the process stuff. So, yeah.
1: Another thing we hear a lot is the hybrid workforce, Dan. What, what is Bain's interpretation of this? And, and how did kind of Ted tackle that, that thorny issue that can often be around kind of people and jobs and automation?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, Ted was emphasised a lot that people are critical still to a hybrid workforce. But then it's, you know, he would and Bain would say that as well, because uh, there are genuine worries how... The workforce will change, and not necessarily for the better, for the sort of lower lower income uh, workforce in, in the next five or 10 years because of automation and AI. But Bain sees a hybrid workforce as machines doing the repetitive work and people doing the sort of more creative work that relies on curiosity. And obviously, machines can't be curious yet. Um, and Ted didn't actually touch on what he thinks might happen if machines do become curious because then then what are we supposed to do as uh, as humans but he wants people doing sort of problem solving as rom touched on earlier and sort of relationship building and machines doing uh what he terms and um, this is a really cute american phrase of swivel seat activities which i must admit i've not heard before so moving from one uh part uh, to the right inputting some data from a spreadsheet and then swiveling to your left and inputting that into uh into into something else so he feels that's or bain feel that's the way the workforce is is moving and he would argue that that free just frees up time for more critical thinking and time for humans to do what they do best which is be really curious about the world and come up with creative and and new ideas um and he's big on sort of urging the c-suite and executives to think through how that hybrid works um, and not just how it can save money, but how AI and automation complement the human workforce rather than overtake the human workforce, but how it can complement it rather than override it and make it redundant, which obviously none of us are very keen on.
1: And augment, indeed. That's um, another word we hear a lot with this kind of thing. Okay, chaps, that was really good. Um, We're going to draw a line under the case study here. But if you want to learn more about Bain & Company's automation practice, you can check out Dan's article on digitalbulletin.com or indeed listen to Dan reading that article on the Digital Bulletin podcast stream we'll be back after this power up your day with the bulletin brief the latest news insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox now next up we have an interview with gianpiero lotito A very interesting man, Gian Piero, he has been president of the European Tech Alliance and is the co-founder of Facility Live, a European tech startup wanting to change how we access information. In the interview, Gian Piero tells me why algorithms cannot ensure search engine reliability, and he discusses his company's ambition to disrupt what he calls the Google monopoly with its unique software for the organization management and search of information. But first, I asked him why he founded Facility Live.
4: Good question, Ben, because because, um, uh, I and Mario Cioteroni come from a long experience in publishing world and uh, since uh, 1987 because we were a very young uh, pioneer in Italy in digital application for the publishing world and you know that Uh, the publishing world was the first industry in the world to marry completely the digital uh, revolution. uh, Because it was the the first uh, massive application, for example, of Apple Macintosh, uh, or uh, uh, the laser printers, uh, Photoshop, and many other things came directly from the Silicon Valley in the publishing world. So uh, it was a huge experience because we had, uh, we were lucky because we uh, had the possibility to work uh, with the last analogic, last analog generation of that world, that knew every kind of uh, methodology, process, etc. Uh, to be applied in uh, in the content management for the publishing world after 15 years of this experience uh, we saw the first generation of uh, search engines that were uh, at the beginning 2001 2002 they were babies uh, really uh, and we uh, compared our publishing experience with uh, the, the 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 way to inspect the web of the uh, search engine of that period And we understood very um, very early that uh, there was the possibility to build something different to approach the access to information
1: now we know facility life has this this ambition the same to kind of disrupt the google monopoly as you call it what, what do you mean by that
4: I, I don't like the the the, 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 the 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 way to tell our experience like uh, uh, David versus Goliath no? uh, but this, uh, I, I think that this, uh, is is a, a a very fascinating way to describe uh, the, our adventure I think that there are different spaces in this moment uh, inside the the web, because we have a first generation of uh, uh, search engines that uh, address you to find uh, everything you want to search in the uh, wall, huge mass of information that are uh, uh, without order and without organization inside the web. There is another way to see the web in the future more organized, more structured, with technologies that can give uh, to you the possibility to access the information uh, more uh, fastly, uh, with more pre- precision, uh, having directly what you are searching for. Uh, a little bit, if you want, like an encyclopedic approach versus a chaotic approach no uh, entropic approach but I think that both will exist in the future with different purposes with different uh, services for the users. Uh, I use Google every day and it is, it is very useful but but there are limits to use it now to have the best uh, quality and the best experience to access information.
1: Okay, so this is all about human search processing, isn't it? So can you talk a bit about what that is and how it underpins what Facility Live does?
4: Yes. Uh, in 2014, in my first uh, speech in the European Parliament, I told, uh, I think that no one of you uh, is ready to live in an algorithmic society where a machine decide uh, what is important for you. No? Uh, and uh, it was 2014. Uh, there was no algorithmic battle of the way there. there it was a, the intuition of a technologist of a, a, a person that is working since uh, 34 years on these problems. Um, so uh, we are, a, used today to be driven by an algorithm uh, without thinking uh, on which kind of problems uh, give to us this because we have a, a, a great difficulty to to access the, the right information that we are searching for so we um, tell to an algorithm suggest me what is uh, the best, but it's not a natural approach to information. The natural approach is, I ask for this, and you give me this nor that, (laughs) like happen very often. Uh, uh, And for this reason, a, a human approach to the search, uh, is what we are trying to, to transfer in our te- technology every day. Uh, I speak about human processing and not natural processing, because the natural language processing is part of the history uh, of the uh, computer science uh, that come uh, uh, to the 90s, for example. So a human approach where really, really there is a, a A flipping in the relationship between uh, man and machine, human and machine, where is the the human that is completely in control of the information and uh, of uh, the access to information and not an algorithm that uh, drives you like it wants.
1: Okay, that's a really interesting thought, Giampiero. Who do you think can benefit the most from this technology and what, what it offers? Is it a specific set of people? Could, could everyone benefit from it, do you think?
4: But uh, in the long term, uh, what is the, the vision of me and Mario Cioteroni about uh, the future of the access to information? And uh, think that I speak always about access to information and not search, no, because I think that as a Two different things. So uh, uh, having the possibility uh, to have these two things, you can search in some cases, and access to information in other cases. If we are right about this, in the future you will see more and more technology that will marry this second vision organized information, structured, and offered to the people in control, because you need to be helped by an algorithm if the technology is not able to give to you the right answer. But if the the technology is, is able to give to you the right answer, you don't need to be driven by an algorithm. So are two ways. In the future, if the the human approach that we are uh, proposing will have the space that we think will have, you can have benefit for individuals, for example. Because you uh, will use this kind of technology, respectful of privacy, respectful of uh, the ethical Uh, matters that for us are fundamental. We don't profile uh, the the users, for example. Uh, You can give to the people the technology to organize their own information on their own devices. So you can have also in in the future, a personal experience uh, to access your information driven by you,
1: Fascinating stuff, Jean-Pierre. And now, I know you've had a, a sort of a long and a distinguished career in technology, and and this this sounds like something you're really excited about. How excited are you about the future for this technology and what it ultimately could achieve in areas that are really important, like the 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 quality of information that we receive and, and that people have at their fingertips? Like it's a really important area, this, isn't it?
4: The future uh, is a future uh, dominated by some. Uh different uh, situation first of all we will uh, we will see uh, the uh, immersion of uh, the emerging of uh, three blocks uh, in uh, technology in the world now we are we will we are uh, seeing two dominating blocks u.s and far east europe is the follower in this moment in uh, digital application and in anything is related to digital but in this moment uh, europe is going to be a protagonist uh, building uh, its first uh, generation of uh, uh, digital champions, di- european digital champions uh, and this is important because we will see a wave of new technologies new companies New kind of services coming from Europe and not only from Silicon Valley or from Far East. This is one scenario, an important scenario. The second scenario is that we will uh, look a, a lot of uh, technologies that will uh, be uh, about information management, but uh, information management me- means a lot of things. Correctly, you, you have seen about the uh, the quality of the information, reliability. No, uh, one of the things that I I wrote an article in, in the 2004, and I uh, I wrote in that article that uh, rumor that is noise, information noise. No, uh, is. Uh, w- could be cancelled by algorithm, and was the truth. Uh, uh, Redundancy, uh, the repetition of the same information uh, continuously, that at at that time was a problem for users, was cancelled by algorithms. But I I wrote that uh, reliability uh, could not be possible to be cancelled by algorithms. Because in reliability, you need uh, the human capability uh, to understand completely an information. uh, And uh, sometimes the blend uh, is so uh, narrow, is so small, that only our brain can distinguish uh, if it's a good information or not, a good source or not, a credible information or not. So, um, this is a lack. I don't think that the artificial intelligence can solve the problem of fake news, or uh, uh, the reliability of uh, sources and information. Luckily, this is a capability that will remain to the humans.
1: Right. It's time for us to let you go, listener. First, though, some podcast plugs for you. You can listen to a back catalogue of all our digital and case studies in audio form. Right on this podcast feed, we have new episodes of Fragmented Reality 2. And also our Tech for Good podcast has gone weekly, featuring interviews on topics like solar energy innovation and delivering emergency communications networks during humanitarian crises. Fascinating stuff. Dan, Tech for Good issue nine came out last week. Sell
2: it to our listeners. So we've gone for a special. It's a smart city special um, with a headline story, probably Bentley Systems taking us on a a tour of the continents to show us what the future of cities look like. And we also spoken to uh, Samsung's head of uh, sustainability in the UK, as well as the UN as well, and how their digital transformation is helping uh, refugees through the pandemic. Fantastic. It's a really
1: great issue, beautifully designed and put together by um, the team. So well worth going to have a look at. Last thing to do is to say thank you to the panel. Romilly, thank you as ever. Uh, My pleasure. Dan, thank you. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. And we'll be back in a month's time, listener. I hope you can join us then.
3: That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify,
1: Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case
3: studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.